Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. And today, as we approach Halloween, Tiffany in Rome, Katie in Seattle, we think about our own deaths. No, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> we, we often consider our own deaths here around Halloween. Katie particularly. I don't waste time dwelling on my own death, but I know I know that's a favorite topic of you. Of I mean, yours. it's one of the ones that keeps circling around you. But we were going to talk about the concept of the three deaths, very well illustrated by a writer named David Eagleman in a book called Some, 40 Tales from the Afterlives. And you brought this up and I said, oh, I read about this in a book. Should I just read the first paragraph about what the three deaths are? It's a very short paragraph. Sure, sure. Okay. This is from a small, very short story that he writes called Metamorphosis. There are three deaths. The first is when the body ceases to function. The second is when the body is consigned to the grave. The third is that moment sometime in the future when your name is spoken for the last time. So those are the three deaths. Yeah. It's very final, that image of your vo- your name being spoken for the last time. Yes. And no longer on earth are you recalled is sort of the implication. Mm-hmm. What was it about the three deaths that you wanted to discuss? Well, you know, in Rome, in the churches, you, have, you often have the side chapels down the side. Mm-hmm. And families, wealthy families will quote unquote, adopt a chapel, like, you know, it'll be their family chapel in whatever their neighborhood church, and they will pay to have it decorated. And their name will then become a part of the name of that chapel, the Carafa chapel, the Contarelli chapel, the Chigi chapel. I mean, there are so many famous chapels just in Rome, and of course, all over Italy. And there's a couple of reasons that they do this. And I mean, one of the reasons is simply like it, it, it makes them look good, right? During their lives. It makes them be like, oh, look how pious the Kiji family is. They're spending all this money to decorate this church and this chapel in such and such a church. So that's a little bit of it, but it's really more so so that their name is remembered. And I mean, it's remembered in the sense that there are actually masses said for their souls, sometimes in perpetuity. Although I don't see how, I mean, I'm like, there's some (laughs) chapels there where like people have been in there for like 500, 600 years. So I don't know about perpetuity, but, you know, definitely there are masses being said for the dead. That's part of the deal when you, you know, you pay all of this money. But also simply because the chapel is named after you, your name by definition is going to appear in Wikipedia, of course, no Wikipedia back then, but today, you know, 400, 500, 600 years later, we read about whatever chapel, the Contarelli Chapel, the Chirazi Chapel on Wikipedia and or wherever in your dictionary, in your guidebook, and you want to read about the Caravaggio paintings and you can't but see that name and you say that name. Mm-hmm. And so the funny thing is the more important the artist, the more the more likely your name is going to be brought up <laughs> regularly. Right. And I mean, I'm sure they were aware of that. And so they always want to find the best artists and champion the best artists so that they will become, it's kind of like a way for wealthy people to attach themselves to the immortality of great artists. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is a way for them in some way to preserve their presence and influence on the earth, 
even mm-hmm. if they are gone. Yeah. Do you think that that they would have, I mean, I know that this concept of the three deaths is just a concept, but do you think that they would have felt that for some reason they need to keep their name alive in perpetuity? I mean, I don't think there's a need for it. I think it was just, you know, an ego thing, really. I mean, I, from this family, I want my family name to, I mean, it's the same reason people scrawl their name onto the side of the Coliseum, which they shouldn't do, but, you know, or anywhere mm-hmm. on the side of the, on in the subway or write something in a bathroom stall. People, people have a tendency to want to put their names on things from tiny to huge. Mm-hmm. We... We want to be remembered in some way. And if, you know, that's one of many ways to be remembered. Yeah. A way to be seen, so to speak. Acknowledge. Leave mm-hmm. a, a piece of yourself behind. I mean, I guess you yeah, see that it, a lot in Rome with uh, the people leaving the locks with their initials. And even though, I mean, we did that in season one. And even though the officials come through and they cut all the locks off, as you're leaving Rome as a tourist, you think, I left my name in Rome. My name's going to be connected to that bridge for the rest of time because they won't be able to get it off. I threw the key into the Tiber River, but yeah, not so yeah. much true, but the intention is still there. Yeah. And I mean, you never know. You never even, even if you're spending the equivalent of, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars for this privilege, you don't know. Is the church going to be devastated? Is it going to be sacked by, you know, a rival tribe? You know, you don't, you don't know. So, so, but, but it's a pretty good chance. And sometimes, and I, I was just at the Carafa Chapel in Santa Maria Sopra Minerva, uh, which was painted by Filippino Lippi, by the Carafa family, specifically Oliviero Carafa. Now, this guy, he was like, there's no way that anybody is going to be confused about who commissioned this chapel. Because <laughs> in the central painting, which is the Annunciation, you've got Mary, you've got the angel Gabriel, and you've got... Cardinal Oliviera Carafa kneeling right next to them. Yeah. You know, his mm-hmm. portrait is in there, although, of course, you know, wasn't actually there at the event. But not only that, um, his name is Oliviero Carafa. Oliviero is the male version of the word Oliviera, which is like an olive tree, right? Mm-hmm. So there's an olive branch in the painting behind him. And there's also a, a carafe. His mm. last name, Carafa, means carafe. So, like, he's putting all these clues in there. He wants to be, you know, this is, <laughs> he wants to, everyone to know this is my, this is my place. And there's also tombs often in these chapels. I mean, that's probably a kind of a practical bonus of paying <laughs> for all of this money to have this chapel that then you have somewhere to be buried. Right. Um, but, um, hmm. but you know, it's it's interesting. It, it made me think of this. Here's a question. Is there anybody in Rome or in history that you know of that would have had themselves painted as like, say, you know, he's the Jesus figure, but the Jesus figure happens to have the countenance of this particular patron? Yeah, all the time. I mean, it was not technically allowed, at least not in Caravaggio's time. In Caravaggio's time, there was this rule uh, that um, you couldn't depict any saint as a known person. Right. Even if that person was like a, a, a priest, you, you you couldn't have the features of a of a known person in the painting as a saint. And that's why you'll sometimes see these extra characters pop up that, you know, are just kind of hanging around. Yes. Looking uh, in. But <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But they, they, but they broke these rules. Uh, and I know Cardinal Francesco del Monte, who was Caravaggio's uh, greatest patron, his face has been immortalized in the face of Saint uh, Saint Francis of Assisi, 
in the ecstasy of St. Francis by Caravaggio. Um, so that's one example. And I'm sure there are many, many more. And then, of course, we all know that Caravaggio had models mm-hmm. who modeled for, you know, the Virgin yeah. Mary. And I mean, that's the crazy. See, so when you when you start to think about, you know, whose name gets remembered in history, you know, obviously you've got the people who are actually out there making history. Right. The Caravaggios and the Mozarts and the George Washingtons and, and the kings and queens of the world. Yes. These people they are making history. And so, you know, we will remember most of their names, obviously. Somebody will. Even if it's not commonly remembered, there'll be some obscure historian who knows the name of these random people. Mm -hmm. But then there are these, like, historically adjacent people, I feel. And those are like, you know, the Carafa family. And, I mean, of course, there was a pope in the family, so he's going to be, his family's going to be remembered nonetheless. But there are these other people who... I mean, I find myself talking about, and I'm like, isn't it bizarre that I'm sitting here in 2023 talking about Filide Melandroni, for example, who was a prostitute from Siena brought to Rome by her mother when she was 14 years old to go to work and support her family because the family had fallen on hard times and there was no other way for them to make money. And I know stuff about this girl. She is so the type of person who should have been lost to history, you know, mm-hmm. but, you know, I hate to say the word, but a, a nobody type person, you know, just a person who's going to slip through the cracks and not be remembered. Maybe not even, you know, if she, especially if she doesn't have children, she's probably not even going to be remembered a year or two after her death. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And yet, and yet, 400 plus years later, I'm talking about her. I know where she's from. I have some basic ideas of her life. I know what she looked like. I know some things about her personality. She even appears in my book. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and that is because Caravaggio used and, her as a model. Right? And that's because, yeah, I'm, that's because she was one of Caravaggio's models. She was probably his favorite model. And she appears probably more often than any other one female model in his work. And you think about the decisions that someone makes in their life and how it changes not just their life, but their, you know, their memory after their death. And like, where was she when she came into contact with Caravaggio? Was he a client? Was he someone she just, you know, knew through friends? When did he ask her to model for him? Did she have to think about it? Was it an easy decision? Was she like, sure? Was she bored out of her mind while he was? Was she bored out of her mind? Or did she love it? Was she was she just a natural at it? You know, and did she have any idea, you know, that we would be sitting here 400 years after her death talking about her on a podcast? It's just not on a podcast, certainly. (laughs) Well, but you know what I mean? Like, um, yes. Did she know her face would appear in countless art books he painted her as the virgin mary no no that's not the same one no that was um lena antonietti that was the one who he was he had a relationship with okay who was another one of his favorite models but also um, a prostitute yes most likely almost for sure a prostitute both of them it's interesting because i know that some of these prostitutes from what you've told me at least i think i know that they would have been recognized as who they were while they were kind of nobodies they're not so much a nobody that people aren't like what a beautiful virgin mary some people would know that hey that's uh that's 
that prostitute <laughs> from whatever district or whatever. Um, was he, I mean, maybe you don't know, but was he using prostitutes as his model for Mary to be subversive or was he just using people he knew? Do you have any idea? I mean, okay, first of all, this is kind of a multifaceted question. So first of all, I should say that both of these women, uh, Fili de Melandroni and Lena Antonietti, they were both courtesans, to be precise. They were not street prostitutes. They may have started out as street prostitutes, but they were both, particularly Filide, well-read and intelligent women. Whether or not they were educated, I don't know, but they were intelligent enough to be able to have intriguing conversations with the men that they you know, encountered socially and through their work. And so they were more highly valued because they could be a companion at a dinner. That is the reason why, yes, they would have been more likely to be recognized. We know for a fact that both of them actually had clients, especially Fili de Melandroni, because one of her clients was a nobleman and he paid Caravaggio to paint her portrait for him, mm -hmm. um, which that's a painting that doesn't exist anymore because it was destroyed in World War II. But um, but so we know that they would have been recognized, not necessarily by everybody, but by some people, by some cardinals. The, you know, the, the, the courtesans were their clients were primarily men of the church, you know, because, you know, they're the ones who, uh, who are unmarried and who, you know, who don't have anyone else to turn to. Right. Um, and have money to spend. Yeah. And, and have money to spend. I mean, and it's important to understand the social structure back in those days was very different. There were not a lot of single women. You were either a nun or you were married or you were a prostitute. I mean, there really was no other option for women. You didn't have like, oh, this is my girlfriend. It mm -hmm. wasn't like that. It was, you know, if you were an if you were an unmarried man, and you needed your so-called needs met, there were not a lot of options outside of prostitution. That's just how it was. So no no judgment there. But um, so that's the one thing. The second thing is, did he do it to be subversive? I mean, I I kind of think yeah, probably, and also probably because it was just the. Okay, here's the other thing. <laughs> Who, who else is he going to get to model for him? Oh. The, the nuns? The married women? I mean, I don't no. know. I don't know. Only, I don't know. I mean, even Michelangelo couldn't even Michelangelo couldn't get women to, to model for him. He used men. And mm -hmm. then he just made their features female and put boobs on them. Um, <laughs> Which is evident sometimes, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I think that he, the exception of old women who were sort of beyond reproach because of their age, there was no young unmarried virgin who he was going to get to to pose for him. Their parent, her parents, would never have allowed it. Just as there was no, there would be no young or middle aged married woman who would have modeled for him because her husband wouldn't have allowed it. So really, prostitutes are the only, mm. you know, the only available women. Yeah, but I mean, paint. was what were was like Raphael using prostitutes for his women? Well, I mean. His famous Fornarina was his mistress, who right. was a courtesan. I mean, you, there was, like I said, there's when you have a mistress, it's like the women back in those days had they had so few options that if you were someone's mistress, it was almost like you were a courtesan by definition. Right. Even if you only were maybe with one man your whole life, but you were his courtesan, you were his kept woman. Right. Right. Does that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, should I layer on this concept of the three deaths? Yes. So, yes, so now that we know that some of these people were able to keep their names alive in perpetuity, 
I like the um the dark way that this short story goes about that. Okay. <clears throat> so remember the third time, the third death is that moment sometime in the future when your name is spoken for the last time. So this is his next imagining of what happens. So you wait in this lobby until the third death. There are long tables with coffee, tea, and cookies. You can help yourself. There are people here from all around the world. And with a little effort, you can strike up convivial small talk. Just be aware that your conversation may be interrupted at any moment by the callers who broadcast your new friend's name to indicate that there will never again be another remembrance of him by anyone on earth. Your friend slumps, face like a shattered and re-glued plate, saddened even though the callers tell him kindly that he's off to a better place. No one knows where that better place is or what it offers because no one exiting through that door has returned to tell us. Tragically, many people leave just as their loved ones arrive since the loved ones were the only ones doing the remembering. We all wag our heads at that typical timing. Mm, so should I continue sad. on? Because then it gets, then it gets into the, the people who um, have made a name for themselves on the earth. Because they never get to go away, I guess. They, they're in purgatory forever, I guess. That's the idea. I mean, is, for example, think about Cleopatra. Is there ever going to be a time when nobody mentions Cleopatra? I or mean, <laughs> Julius Caesar. That's the idea. So if, if purgatory is like, I, I love the reversal of this because now it's like we all leave the earth hoping to be remembered. And yet mm -hmm. he's turning it we on his head because he's saying, well, now forgotten. they can't, yeah, they can't move on until they're forgotten. But let me read you this last little section. I won't read the, the part in the middle, but the last little section of the people who are remembered on the earth. I mainly want to read this because it reminds me very much of the prostitutes that you were just talking about, you know, and you recalling them all these years later. Okay. Okay. Not everyone is sad when the callers enter the room and shout out the next list of names. On the contrary, some people beg and plead, prostrating themselves at the callers' feet. These are generally the folks who have been here a long time. Too long. Especially those who are remembered for unfair reasons. For example, take the farmer over there who drowned in a small river 200 years ago. Now his farm is the site of a small college, and the tour guides each week tell his story. So he's stuck and he's miserable. The more his story is told, the more the details drift. He is utterly alienated from his name. It is no longer identical with him, but continues to bind. The cheerless woman across the way is praised as a saint even though the roads in her heart were complicated. The gray-haired man at the vending machine was lionized as a war hero, then demonized as a warlord, and finally canonized as a necessary firebrand between two moments in history. He waits with an aching heart for his statues to fall. And that is the curse of this room. Since we live in the heads of those who remember us, we lose control of our lives and become who they want us to be. Ugh. Yeah, that <laughs> that makes that's yeah, I, it makes it sound so horrible to be to be remembered or to have your name at least remembered. It's a lovely it's a, it's little, a lovely it's, concept, it's, isn't it though? And it is sort of true. Like we as the more the hundreds of years stack up, you know certain facts about this woman, but you don't really know is that 100% how she would understand it herself. 
Mm-hmm. And, and we can't know. Because even if it was written down, like, I, and I know that histories for women are suspect and rarely recorded uh, in history, especially the further back you get. But even sometimes the things that are written down are like the truth that they want you to know, not the truth as they would understand themselves to be. Yeah. And I mean, there's so many times we have to know that there's so many times when people have been remembered for something they didn't do, whether it was a good thing or a bad thing. Mm-hmm. And I mean, how how miserable is that? Like, how horrible would it be if you went to your grave and people thought you were, you know, a terrorist and the truth was that you were trying to stop the terrorist, you know, and <laughs> yeah. how horrible to to have your name constantly brought up and maligned when it wasn't mm-hmm. true. I mean, you'd think, well, they're dead. People, people are dead. So it doesn't matter to them. And it probably doesn't. But yeah. there is a reason that people want to be remembered. Clearly, there's a reason people want like even even that very first line that you read when they said, when your name is spoken for the last time, like, oh, mm-hmm. like I, that thought is, I guess, I don't know, I guess we want to be, I mean, then there's just the simple act of remembering people that you actually knew. Yes. You know, which is, it's a more authentic way to be remembered. But I, yeah, and I think it also is, I mean, yes, obviously the people who knew you and, and that's the other thing is like that people who know you carry, even, even as you and I are alive, people we know, even you carry different parts of me in your head than I remember. You remember certain things that I said or did that I don't necessarily remember I did and mm-hmm. vice versa. I mean, that's the other interesting thing. Like when we're all actually alive and we know each other, we are carrying little pieces, like our own version of what story I would tell about Tiffany, say, you know, mm-hmm. I carry my own version of you in my head, which is not necessarily I get the truth of who you are, I suppose, you know, but it's a snapshot of something I remember about you. Mm-hmm. That's the other funny thing. Yeah, it's it's an interesting topic. And that story definitely brings up some things I would not have would not have considered yes. myself. Yeah, it's a great little um, book. It's it's 40 t- tales that are just musings on different afterlives. And, and that's just one of the many. I have a friend who, uh, I mean, another version of this, I think, is that, you know, people having a gravestone for themselves or a, their name somewhere in a columbarium or whatever it is. And I have a friend that I li- we like to walk through cemeteries together. And sometimes we like to make up the stories of the people and sometimes if one, something's very intriguing, we'll research them and try to see if we can actually figure out who the real people were. And I, I have this tombstone that I took a picture of on my phone that has like the name of the couple. It's Archibald and Celestine, which are already just awesome names. Archibald and Celestine Tudor. My grandpa was Archibald. There you go. And Celestine is a great match for an Archibald. You know, lots of big dramatic mm-hmm. names. And Archibald's, you know, he's there his beginning date is 1883 and then he dies in the 1900s and Celestine's listed as Celestine 1878 to 19 and then there's no numbers after that so and we were joking like she's still alive you know and it would have been 100, <laughs> 160 years or something you know but then we're like what happened to Celestine where, where did she go and then you can also start imagining like you know, Celestine never got buried here. She did something else with her life after this, you know? And that's 
equally yeah, she, interesting. She had another lover after Archibald. Yes. And she decided to be buried with him instead. Exactly. Um, I but that does that. make you wonder, though, why? Like, I get two people having their name on the same tombstone. Like, if you do, like, a joint plot. But, like, would you put the other person's name on there before they died? That seems really weird. I think people do that all the time. Or at least they used to. I mean, my grandparents had, a, like, they paid for the tombstone at one time together. And so the same artist comes through and carves their both their names in the same way so that it looks uniform, you know. I'm and then, sorry. I'm not... I don't consider myself a superstitious person, but there is no way in hell <laughs> that I would allow my name to be carved on a tombstone before I died. Ever. Ever. <laughs> well, we're a different generation, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> or we're, we're willing to spend the extra money. I mean, nowadays, people don't necessarily have a tombstone anymore. Like, I mean, how many yeah. people are just cremated cremated, and cast me into the to the wind, you know, and I don't need to have a spot. My spot is in your head, you know? Yeah. That's, mm -hmm. that's my spot. I don't need to have, you know, spend thousands of dollars on a place on the earth. Yeah, that's my dad. My dad does not have um, a tombstone. He was cremated and um scattered his ashes were scattered in the puget sound yes do you wish uh, that he had a tombstone somewhere i mean the truth is I, I i would probably very rarely have a chance to visit it because i'm all the way over here but i i mean part of me does i think i think that there's something i think it's a nice ritual to visit the tombstone of your you know of your dead Whenever we are in Salerno, Claudio like always makes a point of going to the, the cemetery and visiting his grandparents' tombs, mm -hmm. um, which I admire. But I do think that it's not, yeah, it's not really necessary because the person's not there anymore. You know, even if their 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 mortal coil is there, but it's not truly there. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, sometimes I do. Sometimes I wish I wish that he did. But speaking of of speaking his name or the name of a of someone who's who's died, I do try to talk about him to Aurelio, mm -hmm. who doesn't remember him uh, because he met him really just one time over a series of days when he was not even two, so he really doesn't remember him. But I talk about him and I tell his stories. You know, like I tell the funny stories that my dad used to tell me. I tell them to. Oh, really? Like one of my favorite stories that I tell him sometimes when we're like on the way to swimming is I, you know, I say, you know, Grandpa Sam, once when he was a teenager, he was doing laps in the swimming pool, you know, because I'm like telling him why he needs to wear Speedos instead of trunks, you know, mm -hmm. Grandpa Sam was swimming in the swimming pool in a pair of swim trunks and he dove in. And by the time he got to the other side of the pool, he did not have any swimming trunks on anymore. Uh -huh. <laughs> And so this is like one of the stories that that Aurelio knows and mentions and brings up of his, uh, you know, he'll be like, oh my gosh, I didn't tie the knot in my swimming suit. I'm going to be like Grandpa Sam and have my swimming costume over there. Mm -hmm. um, That's cute. You know, things like that, little things, you know, just or, you know, Grandpa Sam's favorite animal was a whale or, you know, little things that that are un, kind of unimportant, but that make him real to Aurelio. With the mm -hmm. hope that as he grows up, he will feel like he is someone that he knew, even though he really didn't. Mm -hmm. 
at least he knows his stories and he has an idea, you know, has an idea. And so I, I do try to do that. That's nice. Make a point of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is nice. I know, because it's so e- quick to lose track through the generations, you know. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know my own grandfather, um, my dad's dad, because he died before I was born. And nobody, nobody ever talked to me about him, mm. really. My dad never talk, never thought to talk to me about him. Mm. Almost never. But my older sisters remember him. They refer to him as Grampy when they talk. So I know when they say Grampy, it means my dad's dad. But when they're gone... Who's, who's ever going to talk about him again? Yeah. Yeah. That'll because be... he died so, he died relatively young, you know? Yeah. Well, The Three Deaths. Some is the book, David Eagleman. It's an old book. It's not old, but it's it's been out for a while. If you want to look it up, it's a good, uh, good meditation on death and dying in a kind of fun and creative way. And maybe that's what you want to be doing this Halloween. It's not too late. Yeah, you know, Katie, I just came up with a great idea of how to keep yourself spoken at least beyond the generations those few generations that remember you okay um well because i have another grandparent a great great grandmother who i talk about not like not it's not like i'm talking about her all the time because she also died before i was born but i think she was i think she was if i'm if i'm not totally getting confused here she would have been my that grampy that I just mentioned. Actually, she's just a great grandmother. She's his mother. Okay. So, so he died, you know, in like the seventies. So you can imagine how old she was, but she left behind a couple of very interesting heirlooms, Mm. nothing terribly valuable, but things that had really great stories behind them. Mm -hmm. I feel like I'd mention her and I talk about her because I have these objects in my home. Mm-hmm. And when I really was a little older, I'll tell him the stories of these objects and where she got them and how she was unusual for this and for that reason. Mm-hmm. So we just need to make sure that we collect <laughs> some cool stuff and make sure we leave them to somebody who knows the story and who finds the story interesting. It doesn't necessarily have to be a relative, yes. but somebody in your life younger than you who finds this story fascinating and will tell it to the next generation and have a reason to value this this object. Okay. That seems like a, a high lift, but I we have we can do it. I think it could happen. It's much much easier than like figuring out who is going to be the greatest artist of your generation and having him paint you. <laughs> That's true. Like, it's easier than that. <laughs> but if I do figure it out, I'm definitely going to do it. I will absolutely pose. No questions asked. <laughs> you don't even have to pay me if I figure out you're the greatest artist of our time. Don't even bother. <laughs> Just put a little plaque with like the correct spelling of my name on the back. You know, that that will work. Well, happy Halloween, everyone. And if you feel like you missed us telling ghost stories this year, like we did last year, I have to say that we told a very spooky, very scary, very true to life, real true life story, my own story, one that I will not and never will ever share on this actual show. It's over on Patreon right now. Uh, If you want to support the show for as little as $5 a month, you can hear a very scary, very strange, very puzzling, not sure what it all meant story on our Patreon bonus episodes, bonus episodes every month. I think there are links in the show notes. Or you can visit thebittersweetlife.net. What did you think of that story, Tiffany, without giving anything away? It, it chilled me. 
Absolutely. It chilled me. And I stand by what I said to you about it. Yeah. What I think. Mm-hmm. All the right. more I think about it, the more convinced I am. So just go to patreon.com slash the bittersweet life podcast if you're interested in hearing that spooky tale. Yes. And supporting the show, which of course keeps this show alive for another year. <laughs> All right. And until next time, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. Join us again. Bye.